I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and sailing the muddy waters with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we off to today, Mel? Well, Freddie, for many of us living in tourism hubs like Southern California or Orlando, it's pretty easy to take the major parks for granted. But for my friends living outside of these markets, the places they go to for family fun and big thrills are often those homegrown theme parks right in their own backyards. But the story of America's regional theme parks are much more interesting and amazing than you might expect. Our guest today is our very own Dr. Barry Hill. A good friend, professor, and author of a brand new book, Imagineering an American Dreamscape, The Genesis, Evolution, and Redemption of the Regional Theme Park. Barry also happens to be the producer of our show and an all-around good sport. I give him a hard time here and there. Alrighty, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Hey, Mel, I am excited to talk regional theme parks today. You know, there's tons of history, folklore, legends, the stuff uh, where you hear about these great things that happened and then the park is no more. We get, you know, some extinct stories, extinction stories uh, with all these regional theme parks. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. And uh, I wanted to kind of put it out there to you. What's your favorite regional theme park memory? Um, these places that aren't the big big dogs in the theme park world. What's your you got any memories from your childhood or? Well, you know, uh, some of mine actually go back to Europe and Germany. Uh, you know, I, I went to Europa mm-hmm. Park right after they opened and Fantasia Land. But um, you know, one of my special memories uh, here in the states, uh, if you will, um, we lived at Fort McPherson for a little while in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, um, and. Uh, one of the few family trips where my mom, my dad, my brothers, and I all got to hang out together, uh, particularly uh, non-Disney, was uh, Six Flags Over Georgia. And I think it was uh, oh my. early enough days before uh, kind of the kind of the takeover of the, the Iron Rides where there was enough of that original um, kind of special sense of regional place and culture and vibe and a lot of kind of low-tech, high-touch kind of attractions but uh, yeah that that trip is definitely burned into my memory and you know I, I try to relive that even today taking my kids on our annual father's day trips to our local six flags here and and uh you know get those adrenaline rushes with them well that that's funny i um i love a particular park that's on the i5 headed up to uh headed up to portland uh near salem is enchanted forest they're they're kind of similar too in in that uh th- it's funny these these 
people who decide to build a theme park, they just get it in their mind that they can do it themselves. And the, the I think it's the Turner family um, uh, owns the Enchanted Forest Park, and they built everything out of cement. They built their Alice in Wonderland out of cement. They built their castle out of cement. And, and actually, it amounts to just a really fun place. And I think it just comes from the same spirit of a daddy wanting to build something for his uh, kids to enjoy. Well, I'm actually going to be uh, in that area next week, so I might have to sneak in and sneak over if the If they fence. are open, <laughs> you need to stop by. You know, they do close down for the uh, colder months, so it is Oregon after all. Well, I've, um, I've been known to sneak into a few closed theme parks in my time. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to give you any ideas, so don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't sneak onto a place illegally, folks. Listeners, this is for you. Well, anyway, as, as you're interacting with clients, and we're, today we're going to be talking about a lot of the great mavericks who built theme parks. After they saw what Disney did, they went ahead and uh, tried to build their own and succeeded in many cases. So, Mel, as you're interacting with clients and you're in, you're finding these same sort of visionary dreamers, sometimes they're out-of-the-box thinkers who want to bring a theme park dream to life. What is one thing that you find that they have in common with uh, those uh, original theme park designers? Well, I think you nailed it in in referring to them as visionaries, uh, you know, folks that uh, just have a, a sense of possibility of what, uh, you know, their world, at least in their backyard, could and should be, you know, and I mean, because there's just a lot easier and more standardized ways of of making money and, and quite often the real motivation uh, of both some of these early entrepreneur, entrepreneurs that developed these original parks, as well as ones we're working with today, um, you know, as opposed to kind of the, a lot of the overseas developers that want to tap into global IPs and Hollywood right. studios. And they, they really want to, you know, kind of really just develop a bunch of homes or, you know, more standardized urban developments using the theme park as kind of the carrot, um, but, uh, you know, I think in common we, we have is Walt's original idea of a place a dad could make some memories with his daughters. And, you know, genuinely some of the local visionaries we work with, you know, they just have a heart for their community, their region, their kids, uh, and would love to, to see kind of that, uh, that family connective tissue magic happening yeah. closer to home. They're future casters. They're, they're, they kind of believe in something that's uh, a little closer to the heart than, than just some sort of a corporate throwdown. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a reason why they're willing to go through all the uh, pain and aggravation, not to mention the, you know, the fun and the sandbox. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's not just because they're seeing an uh, internal rate of return that exceeds some other opportunities for investment. That's great. Well, our guest today is a professor of audio engineering. He's an ex- instructional designer and author, and um, he's actually a big student of theme park design and history. So Barry, Barry Hill is one of those unique individuals who, you know, I think he successfully balances work, home, and roller coasters, as you should. You know, there's the, the three <laughs> top things in life <laughs> Barry holds on to. Um, he's also the designer and producer of this little podcast, and he happens to be the butt of all my jungle jokes hidden after the credits of every single episode. So it's finally time for the Themed Attraction Podcast interview with the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry, welcome to the uh, the. Uh Themed Attraction Podcast. It's uh, pretty awesome finally getting you on air. You're you're Mr. Behind the Scenes usually, but I'm so excited to share with uh, 
our listeners um, kind of our you know collective origin story in terms of our relationship. But it, this reaches to the beginnings of the podcast, and um, interestingly enough, uh, kind of our latest chapter, literally with your your new book, which uh, I was thrilled to finally get to to read uh, after so much heavy lifting on your part. It's just what a contribution to the industry. So welcome. No, I'm happy to be here. I'm actually a real person. I think everybody just assumed that I'm like this Freddie's imaginary friend, you know. And, oh, that's uh, well, so true. I really am. Just don't tell him that I'm real. But uh, so you're more than you know, just uh, a butt of his bad jungle creep skipper <laughs> jokes. Huh? Yeah, it's it's funny to have you on because I feel like there's an accountability thing here. I mean, you are you're uh, a, a professional sound. Uh, you're a professor of sound and whatever you tell me what your your job is and then i'm always rec- out here recording this stuff and hoping that you like it so uh for those of you listeners who don't know if you don't stay through the outro of our show if you don't stay through the credits and uh, a little information about our guests then uh, you don't get to hear the little joke i make about barry every single episode uh, <laughs> might be worth going back to old episodes and listening to see uh, how i abuse barry so now it's a little bit scary to see him <laughs> here on the zoom call because how can i say anything bad about him he's right face there to face almost <laughs> yeah, yeah i can get even with you no problem i have these little I hidden i have can. these hidden messages that i you know backward masking in the old days of records and stuff oh, oh yeah i've got them all through these episodes yeah. so uh yeah i'll get you not to mention so some sorry, interesting sound effects he could unleash uh, on, on yeah. you whenever he wants. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry, Barry. What is your your uh, What are you a professor of? What do you, What's your day job? Uh, audio engineering. Ah, yes. So I teach recording, audio production, things like that. So you know how things are supposed to sound. Um, well, yeah. So I, most of the time, yeah. <laughs> so the pressure's on here. The pressure's on. Well, we're, yeah. we're grateful that you're here. I'd love to, you know, kind of get started. Uh, for our guests, you know, um, Barry's been a long, uh, long-time friend uh, of the show. I mean, he's the producer and uh, designer of uh, the sound for this uh, program. And we're, he's been such a superstar friend and uh, colleague with this podcast. But he's also, um, you know, just a lover of this this uh, theme park uh, world that we're we're working in, and so uh, th- he doesn't do it just for the sound. He does it because he's passionate about that. So Barry, we give us a little bit of background, like uh, why theme parks? Where's that uh, love come from you? And then we'll dig in a little bit into uh, the book and the podcast and all that. Um, I got the bug early on. I was a little bitty guy, and um, in 1973, my parents took me to see this new place called Carowinds, and they had no idea what it was, and they actually didn't like it very much, but I was hooked. I just <laughs> thought it was a magical land that um, I just loved it and uh, got back as much as I could. Um, in college, I worked in the entertainment department doing shows and, and whatnot. Um, and then over the years, got really interested in um, design and park design, which of course means a lot of stuff with Disney and Imagineering and you know, things like that. Um, so, and of course, my son and I are big, huge roller coaster fans, right? So, uh, we do summer trips and and uh, go around and hit, hit the rides and whatnot. So, yeah, it got started a long time ago. Yeah, that's great. That that reminds me of, um, you know, where we first met. I think um, I, you know, years ago we had done a 
uh, I had been interviewed by um, some some mutual friends, Doug Barnes and Brent, over at the Season Pass podcast. And yeah, I know Brent was kind of. Uh, I think he grew up in like either Chicago or St. Louis, but you know he had those early memories of like Six Flags uh, over Mid America in the seventies. I, I had a similar thing. I had a quick uh, layover basically when my dad was stationed at Fort McPherson, and, and I had a chance to do kind of actually one one of the only family theme park trips I ever did. Um, at Six Flags Over Georgia, and, and being at some of those early regional parks in the '70s, the early '70s, there was definitely a some some special memories and magic uh, for those of us that are working today in Dubai and China, and you know, much bigger scopes and scales. But um, you know, I, if I recall right, isn't that how we kind of first connected? Barry was uh, kind of out of that uh, original podcast interview uh, with with Ira West. Um, and uh, you know just some of the nuggets that he he was dropping on us. Oh yeah, uh, during that that great interview. Exactly. Well, you and I had met at a TEA event um, at Carnegie Mellon, and then a couple years later, um, listening to the season pass and its interview, and and you're on. It's like wait a minute, I love that guy, you know. Um, and IRS is there, and it just it just really struck me what a wealth of information. And that's a side of the industry that that very few people know anything about, right? We all know how Disneyland came about. We mm-hmm. know how Imagineers design parks and that kind of stuff. But here was the guy who was part of the dream team that did almost all of these regional theme parks that we still love today, you know? And I just like, this story's got to be told. People need to know about these individuals and how did they do it, where they came from. Um, so, yeah, that's really what struck um, um just kind of struck a chord with me. It's like, yeah, we've, we've got to do this. Yeah, honestly, uh, for the listeners, you know, if that is a primer, that was one of, um, you know, one of the episodes I listened to the most. Go back to the Season Pass podcast and listen to the Ira West episode. It is it it really does uh, bring you back, help set up uh, sort of a love for and the history of these parks. And we were, by the way, we were so blessed to be able to capture Ira because he, you know, he oh, died. Yeah. Uh, a short while later mm-hmm. and um you know the what i i think what i'm thankful of is to go beyond kind of the the somewhat uh you know temporary nature almost of a podcast to be able to get uh some of his uh his uh kind of collective knowledge over the decades uh translated uh into your book and to to just have some of that knowledge be able to pass on uh some of the stuff that he was able to share with me over kind of our collaborations mm-hmm. absolutely well, Barry, talk to uh, us a little bit about the book. So we're going to set this up a little bit. Tell us about what the book is. And then uh, give us a little bit of history and why you thought the world was missing this book. I'd love to kind of you know set up why your library is incomplete <laughs> without this book. Well, I mean, there was nothing out there that you could go to that told the story of the regional theme park. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, little nuggets here and there, but... Um, you know, everything leading up to Disneyland, we know about that. Um, but a few people have heard of C.V. Wood, which we can get to uh, shortly, which kind of triggered all this stuff. But um, no one really knew where these parts come from, you know. And uh, so the book overall, the idea is to tell the story of, of um, again, where these parts came from. What were the influences that led up um, to um, what made a regional theme park? 
or the stories behind some of the individuals that decide, you know what, I think I'd like to build a Disneyland in Houston or Nashville or Charlotte. Um, <laughs> and those are really col- you know, colorful people, right? I mean, great personalities. And so telling their story and how the parks got built and some of the trials along the way and then how they changed over the years, right? All these parks are very different. Um, you know, 40 years is what we're talking about now, between 40 and 50 years. And that's a lot of change. Uh, for a lot of reasons, you know, a big part of that is just changes of ownership and uh, and whatnot. And so if you grew up with a park um, the way it was built, you know, in many ways, it's kind of sad because, you know, a lot of that original stuff is gone. You know, it's just not not the same. And yet we're now being, you know, beginning to see uh, a revival of, hey, wait a minute, maybe we've done too much with a bunch of rides and stuff. Let's go back and remember, wait a minute, there's a reason why this park meant something to the locals, right? It had a regional purpose. It had a heritage. It had a history there. Yeah. And so you're seeing companies that are going back and trying to bring the love back, bring the story back, you know, um, the heritage of of where it came from. So that's really reassuring. You know, it's exciting. What I loved about um, your book, I mean, there's so many textbooks, not textbooks, but uh, well, there are textbooks, but also uh, coffee table books (laughs) on, you know, the history uh, uh, and just photo documentation of Disneyland, but you know you, you have such a great historical continuing perspective that you know Disneyland almost is almost the 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 bridge between the past and the future in terms of you know you, you go into the history uh, that you know the form form formation of the the concept of the theme park that led to Disneyland, but I think so many people have also lost uh, sight of. The influence of Disneyland, not just with other Disney parks or even, you know, universities, world class, globally recognized parks and brands. But again, that there is a very direct lineage um, from Disneyland, uh, the origin of the species, <laughs> if you will, uh, to these to these regional parks. But um, yeah, but kind of rewinding before we get to even the regional parks. Um, I was curious your thought on some of the single biggest, because I love the fact that you, you dug into the, the precedents uh, prior to Disneyland, from Coney Island to Luna Park to um, Tivoli Gardens, because I think, you know, there's a, there was almost a corporate line for a couple of years that Walt hated, you know, Coney Island. So he had to have this allergic reaction, you know, against it. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got, you know, we've all, well, rightly so, you know, we say that Disneyland was uh, something that revolutionized the concept of outdoor amusements, and it did. But um, it comes from a long evolutionary series uh, of experiences. Um, And you can go back to the old pleasure gardens of Europe, but I start really with the World Expos, you know, the World's Fairs of the late 1800s, early 1900s, because those were the first times where you start seeing um, a built-for-purpose space that revolves around a central theme. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be energy or the future or something like that. You've got symbolic architecture, uh, thematic attractions, immersive attractions, actually, uh, mixed in with some amusements, people are having fun. Um, they're learning stuff along the way. It's a gated attraction, um, and everything's very purposefully designed and built. Um, and that really set um, a huge groundwork for for the Coney Parks. And no, Walt wasn't a huge fan of Coney. Um, and there was a lot about Coney, depending on what you know when you went. That's good and bad. Um, but the three big you know parks at Coney took that same concept a little bit further and, and aimed more toward the amusement side of things. I mean, the World's Fairs were interesting, largely educational, and, of course, they went away after a year or two. And people said, well, we want to keep riding stuff. Um, and so Coney took uh, literally took some of the attractions from those World's Fairs. Yeah. Um, they transplanted them onto these parks. And um, so it became a, a more structured amusement uh, area. That kind of proved the concept. 
And then you've got several years after that when, you know, Walt's got all kinds of different influences, right? Well, the, the one that blew me away was the direct linkage with um, Luna Park. You know, I mean, really uh, starting yeah. off with a, a ride at the Buffalo World's Fair, uh, you know, that trip to the mm-hmm. moon and then building uh, really, to me, the first theme park, you know, having uh, Luna Park be based on this idea of this moon cityscape that you would actually uh, enter after essentially doing uh, a predecessor of Star Tours, if you will, kind of a motion simulator um, <laughs> where and then, you know, emerge into a, you know, uh, moon maidens dancing and pulling cheese off the walls, uh, giving people a taste of moon cheese and, you know, and then setting it, stepping out into this uh, Arabian Nights fantasy moonscape, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, I think the thing that uh, I bridged the world, I, I think, between the, the world's fairs and uh, kind of the, the ultimate theme park idea. Yeah, I think Luna is probably considered the first uh, mostly kind of a theme park uh, concept. Absolutely. Yeah. And that trip to the moon, what an amazing concept for, I mean, early 1900s, right? And you get in this big building and the things start shaking and, and you, they've got scrolls going by the windows. So you can actually see Earth leaving behind as you, you know, head to um, head to the moon and whatnot. Amazing. Yeah, that's, that's amazing because the... Uh that's how we are with special effects. You know, we watched movies when we were kids and uh, uh, that had all kinds of special effects that we would not stand for today in a movie. Uh, But uh, we didn't notice them back then. Um, Just imagine what it must have felt like to be in that rocket ship. And, uh, you know, wonder if, wonder how, how much they were fooled um, just simply by the addition of the motion and really great, great concept. Well, a lot of the attractions at that point in time, remember people, um, didn't have really any sense of what it was like to be in a different country. Yeah. Most people hadn't traveled. You don't have movies and TV and things like that. No so TWA. To, uh, <laughs> no. And so to be able to um, you know, float on a gondola through a recreation of Venice, right, or to actually ride in a, quote, submarine, um, or to see a five-acre reproduction of the Panama Canal, I mean, this is all new and exciting stuff. Um, ultimately, it gets old, which is partly why these regional parks change over time. You know, fake cannonball splashes in the water and mm-hmm. crude animatronics and stuff. And it's like, okay, no, we're beyond that. You know, we need something more interesting, you know. But anyhow, so yeah, Luna really did set the stage uh, for what this thing could be. Um, and of course, then you got Walt coming along and saying, okay, now we can do something even better than all that. Right. But but even hi- the way you highlighted the linkage between, you know, guys like Ed Shot and, you know, that bringing in the management expertise from Coney Island or Playland in San Francisco and and, you know, not just assuming that uh, they were all idiots and all <laughs> shysters that in carnies that there, there actually are right. some operational lessons to be learned that you can kind of bring in the, you know, bring in the good and edit out uh, the bad. Absolutely. Yep. No, he did his homework. You know, that's for sure. So as we get into the book, there was uh, so let's let's assume that everybody knows the Disneyland story that uh, Walt Disney um, saw these places and thought he could make it better, bringing in the cinematic uh, know-how that he had and and his uh, characters and uh, good storytelling that he was used to, and uh, then after that success happens or part of that success happens, other people want to create their own Disneyland in places around uh, the country. You have a chapter called Duplicating Disneyland is Harder Than You Think uh, and uh, centers a lot around uh, C.V. Wood. So I'd love if you could kind of talk through how did a character like C.V. Wood, let's introduce him as a character in this little history we're making. How did he have such a significant role in creating the regional parks uh, growth around the country? 
Well, he got fired. That's how all this stuff got started. You know, I think that's the story of the entire Theme Entertainment Association. Basically, is getting laid off after Epcot in Tokyo Disneyland uh, yeah, and creating their own right. firm. So that's yeah, exactly. You know, so CV for those of you who don't know the name, um, he's a Texan, larger than life. Talked his way into anything. Um, and convinced them, uh, Walt and Roy, that he could help build their park, right? So he oversees getting Disneyland built. And he was largely instrumental in the sponsorships, getting companies to sign on to, you know, to give them money um, to get things together. He also was kind of shady. So um, there's a lot of, uh, you, you need to read um, Three Years in Wonderland, um, Todd yeah. James Pierce's book. It's just, it, it tells the story of C.V. Wood up until when he gets fired from Disneyland. So he's a guy who gets his park built. Seven months later, he's gone. Because two strong-willed individuals... And, and, and forever erased from the annals of Disney official history. He doesn't exist <laughs> right. anywhere ever again, you know? So, the vice president of Disneyland <laughs> is edited out of history. Well, it didn't help that once he um, once he got fired, he started his own company called Marco Engineering. Then he's going around and he's you know promoting himself as the master planner and designer of Disneyland, right, or whatever. So that didn't help any. So they went yeah. after him legally. Help, help land him in court. It was on his business oh, yeah. card. Absolutely. Yeah, they went after him. Um, but you know, at that point, so he starts his own company. He takes a few Disney artists with him. He hires a few people from the movie industry. One of them, notably Randall Duell. Um, and these are people that know how to put together a three-dimensional set on a budget and to make you, you know, believe that you're in some kind of a special time and place. So he's got this team that kind of knows what they're doing. Then you've got people around the country that say, you know, we really, we've been to Disneyland. We'd like to build one of those in our town. Well, who do we call? Well, there are only two people on earth that knows how to build a theme park at that point in time. And uh, so you've got uh, Walt who didn't want to help anybody. He's busy doing his own thing. And C.V. Wood, who's willing to help. So that's how you get these first few parks um, uh, that, um, I mean, C.V. Wood was instrumental in building three parks um, that were completed and kind of stumbled into being. Uh, we're talking about Magic Mountain in Colorado, um, Pleasure Island outside Boston, and then Freedomland is probably the most well-known one outside New York City. He did start Six Flags Over Texas, um, Angus Wynn and um, the mayor there, Vandegrift, uh, wanted to, to build a park. And again, Walt wasn't interested. So, you know, C.V. said, sure, I'll help you build that. But Angus is a strong personality. Seavey's a strong personality. Um, that doesn't go too well. So Angus fired him and told Randall, um, start your own company. It's your deal. So uh, he got um, the Texas park up and running. And, of course, it did really well out of the gate. And it's been going well ever since. But, uh, yeah, C.V. Wood, that is the bridge. Um, between um, between Disneyland coming about and then helping these locals who can't afford to build a Disneyland. You know, that's extravagant, right? And so they're trying to take the concept and bring it down to a budget-friendly level, uh, theme it to their local area. Almost all these parks were based on local stuff, you know, Texas, Georgia, um, the Carolinas, you know, Opryland with its music, that kind of thing. I think of the 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 IT concept of a minimum viable product. You know, it's just like uh, you yeah. get these art directors that are used to doing these, uh, you know, thin uh, film sets and uh, false fronts uh, that only need to be on camera for a few seconds at a time, and um, you you partner them with local entrepreneurs and developers and dreamers that. Um, you know, really are just raising whatever cash they can uh, towards this dream 
they don't have the benefit of uh, you know globally recognized intellectual properties and characters and uh, you know national t- television shows as their free advertising uh, media. Um, and so the, the idea of radically scaling down the Disneyland concept, but something that generally feels a similar you know kind of scope and scale and length of stay and experience you know a family day out uh in the in that you know early uh to late you know 60s 70s era um and the fact that they pulled it off into you know businesses and projects that actually not only survived but in in many cases thrived um and are still running for the most part yeah and i love that i loved how the um he, he, what C.V. Wood took to all these places was sort of this uh, litany of the theme park tropes. He's got the pirates and western lands and future worlds and and all those things that he just brings and and tries to execute in a little bit different way in all those places. A lot of Jungle Cruise knockoffs. A lot of Jungle Cruise knockoffs. It's almost yep. like literally the, there's a you know there from an overall creativity perspective, you almost can see the the knockoffs of the original. Uh, Disneyland model. I think, you know, other than Fantasyland, I think they, a couple of them had their own, like, uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon lands. But generally speaking, you know, uh, from the Jungle Cruise to the, you know, Flight to the Moon Cinema, you know, kind of large format kind of screening to the Autopia. To, I mean, just, you, you know, the the Sky Rides that, you know, they, they almost kind of... Um, we're ordering out of the same Arrow catalog, you know, and just uh, yeah, <laughs> they were. Oh yeah, were. and Disneyland Light worked locally because none of these people had ever been to Disneyland. Right, right. So you know, a lightly themed knockoff was brand new to them. You know, it was just, this was huge stuff. <laughs> right, with, you know, with lush landscaping, uh, evocative architecture, mm-hmm. clean pathways. You know that family-friendly environment, vibrant, uh, you know, entertainment. It, it was a, it was a good combination i'm sorry that just reminds me of a family story i don't think i've ever told here on the podcast my uh uh, grandfather and uh my my mom her twin brother and brothers and sisters all lived in the san fernando valley in the uh, 1950s and uh, when disneyland came out my uh all the kids were like dad can we go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland. And my grandpa refused for several years. Um, and finally, one day, and he would say, you don't need to go see a Disneyland. I thought it was ridiculous. And so then one day he said, hey, I'm going to take you to Disneyland. And the kids got so excited. They got on their clothes. They got in the car and he drove them down to uh, Ventura Boulevard where there was a field with a tent. And they, he said there was a pony ride and a <laughs> raccoon in a cage. And grandpa thought he could fool the kids that that was Disneyland. <laughs> so so that rings true that if there's a park in some place far away where people aren't driving, you know, across country yet or flying on a regular basis, that they would, you know, this is enough. This is this is theme park mm-hmm. enough for me. I don't know about a raccoon in a cage, but well, <laughs> I don't, don't like want to knock it too bad for, for anyone to get that the idea of Disneyland light. I mean, Barry, do you have any highlight? I mean, because you do such a great job of of taking uh, readers on like those these virtual tours and that really capture the the local color flavor you know that unique special sauce and sense of place that was uh, you know embedded in you know even even in today's context the the politically incorrect you know <laughs> kind of perspectives on history uh, that were embedded in you know some of these parks you want to hit any of the highlights that were you know particularly you know kind of quirky or fun or wish you could go back and check out. 
Oh my, where do you start? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, things like, you know, if the original Six Flags Over Georgia front gate was distinctly Georgian, you know, welcome to the South. It was actually based on a, the burned out remains of a, of a Southern plantation that had burned down with only the Corinthian columns left standing, right? Yep. So you had the columns there, you've got these um, statuary and nice uh, gardens and whatnot, um, and you compare that to what you know we have today, you know, which is um, um, pretty generic uh, kinds of things. I mean, that's all gone at this point in time, right? You know, Carowinds, um, probably rightfully so. You know, got rid of their. Uh, it was called a plantation house because that was architecture. That was the you know the big plantation homes of, of of yesteryear, right? So, uh, but when you walked up to Carowinds, you know, you bought your ticket at a at a big you know mansion and went through the columns and started your journey and all the themes, you know, all the lands. Um, were themed, you know, for that area. You know, I mean, Carolina, um, the Carolinas at Carowinds. Um, now there are some exceptions. You got the monorail and the stern wheeler. You know, nothing Carolina about that. You know, but but you did get a sense of the history of um, of the Carolinas by going around the park. You know, of course, Opryland, beautiful park. You know, just tailor made to celebrate American music. Then you got these little uh, parks we talk about in the book. Um, you know, Dog Patch, USA. Like, where'd that come from? You know, that's from Little Abner. Failed miserably. I mean, you know, didn't didn't last as a theme park very long or whatever. But a lot of quirky uh, things along the way. Uh, Pacific Ocean Park, you know, the pier thing. Um, an amazing nautical thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the ultimate googie, Jetsonian, mid-century modern, polypop yeah. park. <laughs> you know, and that came about, you know, the, um, the people who built that were trying to do a deal with, with Walt. You know, to build a park together uh, on the pier, and Walt wanted nothing to do with it, especially in the fact that they wanted to control it, right? So, um, oh yeah, lots of cool, fun, quirky stories. And but. those are all um, surrounded around a bunch of. Uh, you have a chapter called Entrepreneurs, Visionaries, and Mavericks, and uh, I know each one of them sort of takes on their own sort of mythos as they, you know, they see their context, they see their town, their villi- their uh, city that they want to put a park in, and they see it as a, you know, sort of a ripe, fertile ground for something amazing, and uh, they take off or they don't, uh, depending on their strengths. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the Houston Park, Astroworld. And and uh, <laughs> Judge Roy Huff Hines and his uh... Houston's a good example. Judge Roy, um, I mean, he was a character in the area. These people, you, if you want to decide you want to build a Disneyland in your area, you've got to think big. You've got to be a larger than life personality, mm-hmm. right? You know. So here's Judge Roy. He was mayor when he was like in his twenties. Um, builds the Astrodome, uh, from which we get AstroTurf because you can't grow grass in the dome. You know that kind of stuff. Just what a character, right? And so he builds his Astro World. It's going to be the you know eighth wonder of the world, you know that kind of thing. Um, you got Warner Leroy, um, who built uh, Great Adventure. Um, now here's a guy who grew up. His mother, um, his mother's dad was the Warner in Warner Brothers, and and um, mm-hmm. his dad directed Wizard of Oz. In fact, his dog was the Toto uh, from the movie, which he hated. No kidding. Um, and um, he had this huge vision of he wanted to build something bigger than Disney World, you know, in, in New Jersey. And of course, none of it was realistic. Um, so you've got this big safari park and and a rather small theme park you know, up front. Um, but the stories behind these uh, individuals um, are pretty amazing. 
you know, Opryland comes about because, you know, the uh, Grand Ole Opry is in a terrible place in town. The, the place is about to fall down, about to burn up. So what do we do? And so they end up building this beautiful park along the river, you know, outside Nashville. Yeah, you know? yeah pretty, pretty cool uh, opportunities for people to people with a vision, people with uh, some sort of a plan. And yet, you know, they they can run into uh, their problems as they go. And some some of them, you know, uh are of legend. I like to think about the Hard Rock Cafe uh, or the Hard Rock uh, uh, theme park, Hard Rock Park, and how how much it had going for it as far as theme and, you know, the things that people like and that it just uh, fails miserably. Let's talk a little bit about those uh, attempts to create a new theme park in a different kind of world. Well, you know, several of these parks barely made it. Some didn't. And yeah. even early on, Carolyn struggled at second year and had to be bought by a company that had bigger checkbook uh, to keep it going. So that's a fairly common thing is undercapitalization. You just don't have enough to set roots to keep things going. Uh, and a Hard Rock Park, of course, is the most notorious example because it's, you know, it's in recent times and um, it's been examined over and over and over. But... Um, you know, you, you they try to raise capital to build a park. You have just enough to get it going, to, to open the park. You don't get the attendance, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and then they hit the 2008, you know, uh, recession. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's a notorious story. I mean, I mean, think about, you know, part of everyone has to read Buzz Price's um, book, Walt's Revolution by the Numbers. Um, and follow it. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to do a feasibility study. Does it make sense to build a major park in an area? And, um, you know, Hard Rock got built in Myrtle Beach because John Binkowski had property there already. But think about who goes to Myrtle Beach. You know, these are middle class families that save up all the year and they go to the beach because they won't spend time on the beach. And then maybe late afternoon they do a round of uh, mini golf um, and then go out to eat. And to then have to drive off the beaten path and spend pretty large amount of money for the family to go to this um, this theme park, it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there 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 are fairly good guidelines in terms of you know should you build something somewhere, you should follow them. You know, for the most part. Now Opryland came about. They got the feasibility study from Buzz Price's outfit, and it came back pretty pessimistic. And they ignored it and built it, and then it worked really well for a long time, you know. Yeah, it's interesting to see the the fate of some of these because it's uh, sometimes because uh, people didn't follow, you know, the advice of uh, Buzz and his team, you know. But but quite often they're just uh, these uh, kind of corporate new owners or management decisions that, in retrospect, uh, kind of make you know not a whole lot of sense. I'm I'm talking to you, Astro World. Uh, you know, owners uh, and uh, Opryland owners for you know, r- you know, raising these these parks that had just uh, decades of collective memories and goodwill in the community. It's just such a shame to see some of these parks go by the wayside. It's heartbreaking. I mean, you know, with Opryland, what really hurt is that after the fact, you've got people from the company that look back and said, "Yeah, that was probably a bad idea." You know, so now it's a parking lot. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's ever going to build a park like that again. You know, once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, the, I mean, the bar- bizarre thing is to have, like, uh, you know, one of the world's largest non-gaming convention center hotel complexes and a outlet mall. And this whole 
city scale complex called Opryland, but then to have the the actual Opryland park not there. It's kind of like you know taking the, uh, right. the Disneyland out of Disneyland Resort, <laughs> and you know kind of really stripped it of its soul. Some of it's practical. I mean, um, to be honest with you, a lot of these companies that started out building parks, the Tafts, the Bushes, the Marriotts, whatever, they got out of the business because it just didn't give them the return that they thought they were going to get. So they find out that they're spending a lot of money because you have to reinvest to keep these things going. It costs a lot to run these parks. They're not making a lot. And as the companies, um, larger corporations started buying the parks and the chains, the park division is like a footnote on the balance sheet, right? It's just not even worth their trouble. And so in many cases, it was worth more as a real estate deal, right? So that's Astro World, so they thought. Um, Freedom Land in New York, worth more for housing, you know, than it would ever be for a park of any kind, mm-hmm. especially one that wasn't doing you know, well. Uh, we almost lost Magic Mountain, California, because Six Flags put up for sale for a while. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now. 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. Well, that that kind of reminds me of another part of your book, another couple sections. You have some special guests and... uh, one of them we're familiar with uh, a little bit. Uh, uh, talk about that planning, Mel, because uh, Mel got to uh, show up as a guest uh, writer in the book as well. To s- tell us a little bit about that and what your chapter's about. Well, a little bit of an evolution. I, I think originally we talked about collaborating on the book, and uh, I'm, as usual, I, I get a little busy getting on planes, trains, and automobiles <laughs> every week. And uh, so, I, you know, I think. Um, it, you know, it evolved to uh, being able to do a, a chapter specifically really in honor of our, our friend Ira West, who was Randall Duell's uh, architectural partner at Duell Associates, actually president of the company. And and really what I was trying to do is from a kind of almost a designer's perspective, uh, just kind of share uh, these rules of thumbs and nuggets that, um, you know, not only shaped uh, the parks that Randall Duell, uh, you know, directly designed, but really even still today. Um, kind of really are, are formative that uh, often go kind of under-recognized or under-credited or everyone just assumes that Disneyland set the, the prototype and the template and uh, everyone is just trying to trying to cop that, copy that because I, I, I really think that there was, you know, no other firm that I'm aware of in the world was as prolific, including the Walt Disney Company or Universe Studios uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the pure number of parks that were not only designed but actually executed and built uh, beyond uh, Randall Duell. 
Barry, I'll quiz you. I don't. Do you happen to know the number of, of parks? I mean, I it, you know, it's just so many. I I couldn't even count them. I think you it's know, in the forties, at least several dozen. Oh yeah, you know, probably in the forties or whatever. And you know, they're the ones that kind of you know wrote the rules as they went. You know, so they're starting out um, mainly with Texas. And you can see the parks improve, you know, as they got better at it and they figured out how to do things. And that's what Ira talked about on that season pass interview so well, you know, learning some of these fundamentals of how do you build a queue? How do you build a bathroom? How do you, you know, do the layout? The whole loop concept, um, you know, came uh, from all that. And so this section that Mel put together, it's a tribute, um, you know, to Randall and, and Ira, but it also has a lot of good design nuggets, mm-hmm. you know, so people interested in how this stuff comes together. Or if you're a student of, of park design and this is what you want to do or whatever that's a great section to go through you know and and get some of it because there's some fundamentals there you know um design day you know what's that you know the math behind it things like that it's so so fascinating because one of our clients is uh the, the cedar fair organization which uh has acquired uh actually quite a few of these uh original parks i would actually argue that they've acquired some of the 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 better uh of you know uh, examples of the parks whether it's king's island king's dominion uh, Carowinds and so on and so forth. So as we're actually remaster planning, uh, in particular one of the parks, uh, to be able to to know the the legacy and the history uh, of uh, a park like Great America, which in a lot of ways was kind of one of uh, Duell's later uh, parks, where they really had kind of honed their their model of the Duell Loop, and and um, you know we're almost handling that like we're we're kind of restoring a work of art in a way, you know, it kind of pains me to, to, to almost mess with, uh, kind of their, and it was interesting because as we were working with their executives, that we kept going back to some of the original artwork and the original things that basically had been lost over time because every maintenance guy over the years decided, uh, you know, when it was time to repaint a building to get creative and just, uh, you know, paint, uh, buildings, uh, you know, they, they didn't quite have the same, um, infrastructure that disney has for example with imaginary units uh at each of the locations that can do show standard uh documentation and and kind of uh capture the original intent and um and so it's it's interesting when you talk about that loss of translation over multiple owners uh and over time and multiple operators uh you want to talk about that a little bit barry in terms of uh, that that lost in translation <laughs> kind of approach where some of these parks have devolved so much that I think the average consumer almost doesn't even think of them in the same category as Disneyland or a theme park, really. that they're, they're almost, well, mm-hmm. well, they're amusement parks. Yeah, you know, we'll pick on Six Flags, you know. Um, Six Flags, I mean, you could just drop yourself in any Six Flags in the country and you wouldn't know which one you're in, for the most part, right? Because most of that original stuff is gone. Um some of these other parks that um, before Cedar Fair um, got a hold of them were, you know, they were losing their soul too, right? And some of that, um, you know, uh, uh, Anthony Esparza reminded me nicely um, because I'm pretty hard on Paramount and some of these other companies in the book in terms of what they did to some of these parks, especially my park, you know, Carowinds. It's like, man, they, you know, they tore the guts out of it. But he said, hey, you have to remember, we spent a lot of money on those parks and put in some really nice thematic things that kept the parks going. And he's absolutely right. You know, it was different, um, but they did invest in the parks and it's still in business because of them, you know, and, and we're grateful for that. Well, that's mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. an interesting model, um, Barry, historically, because there was, you're right, there was an era where, you know, Time Warner, uh, Paramount, um, you know, really was trying to follow the footsteps of Disney and now um, Comcast with Universal of, of trying to pair kind of the media and IP owners 
with the parks almost as a distribution network and you know get that synergy uh, but it's interesting because they they almost kind of pulled pulled out of it at, at a certain point what's your your take on um the legacy of that the why overall was that a good thing you know because you know again friends and talented people like anthony you know and, and paramount uh you know they put a lot of investment in rides like you know star trek mm-hmm. coast the board coaster and you know the survivor ride and tomb raider rides you know introducing these intellectual properties that in some cases were kind of a awkward fit into the you know the original soil specific <laughs> historical themes of of these parks but but certainly are marketable relevant properties that uh you know, a lot of people would would actually, you know, drive attendance and, and see value in. Well, and that's the key, right? You've got to put something in there that, that will bring people in. And times change. Uh, things that people are interested in will change. Movies and media IP are a huge attraction, you know. And so it just made a lot of sense for Paramount, who was a media company, to go in and, and put their overlay, you know, um, with that. And um, people mm-hmm. are probably not going to flock to Carowinds to watch the latest, you know, history of the Carolinas theater show, but they'll come see a cool Star Trek thing. So that makes sense. You know, mo- this stuff's inevitable, yeah. you know, all yeah. these changes. Um, but it can be done. So um, Rob Decker, um, who wrote the foreword for the book, uh, he's perfect for that because it was really him and Matt we met at Cedar Fair that kind of put the brakes on and said, wait a minute, we've been building all these ride parks and, and for so long, I think we need to um, remember the heritage of these places. And so we're seeing this resurgence of bringing back the love and and story and theme. I mean, look what they've done at Knott's Berry Farm, you know, to restore some of the historic uh, bones from that park, you know, and right. Carowinds is becoming more of a Southern Carolinas park now, you know, with regions that are themed to the Carolinas, right? Yeah, I remember uh, sitting down for lunch with Matt and, um, you know, he's like, Mel, you got to just understand the cards that I've been dealt, you know, and basically in his mind, mm-hmm. they were these traditional <laughs> real parks. And I actually was trying to bring a little bit of the historical perspective to him and say, you know, just take a look at what these parks used to be. They, they actually had some good bones and some, you know, uh, regional, uh, you know, kind of just unique themes. And, you know, I actually talked about the example of the uh, the missions at Knott's Berry Farm that, you know, it, one of the mm-hmm. reasons that's it's a weird local nuance, because every kid in California, in whatever grade school, they, they have to build a mission. So, you know, when they get there, they're they're um, amazed at, you know, something that's done at a higher level, and they'll follow the entire trail of missions. And, you know, and all those missions had been boarded up and put upstairs and were rotten away. And uh, it's just those little local touches and flavors that you know, really have a power to, to connect with people um, and, and make that place something that just, uh, you know, burns a hole in their, their brain and in, in their heart and through the memories. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, at one of the questions I was going to ask, uh, just to kind of close this out, was thinking, you know, what if you wrote this book the, about the history of of these places, Barry? Um, but what does it matter? What 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 does it matter that we learn about this stuff? And that I think we've started to reveal that uh, understanding the bones and the history of these actually leads us to uh, the ability to capture something that is almost lost. And bring these things, uh, you know, especially in parts that exist now, and and give them their due, and give these these uh, mavericks and <laughs> entrepreneurs their due in creating something that was really quite fantastic and and drove family uh, histories uh, in each one of these areas where where they're built. 
Well, these parks have been a huge part of American fabric for decades now. Right. And I just think it's really important. Most people don't care. They go through the, you know, through the front gate. They pay the money. They enjoy the rides. It doesn't matter to them what it's called, what the theme is, or what color the paint is, right? Um, but just from at least a historical standpoint and from an industry standpoint, um, we need to remember this stuff. We need to know where it came from, you know, and, and um, remember, these are real people, you know, that, that touched how many people's lives, you know, over the years. Right. So, well, I'd argue from a, you know, his, from a psychological perspective, you know, it might be their subconscious, but, you know, there is something without, even if someone can't quite articulate it when they go through a place that just has a level of consistent cohesiveness, uh, intentionality, kind of uh, an internal logic right. and again that that just that tie to something that's unique and special and not just that bombardment of the same corporate ads or the same you know gaudy logo i mean because you, you why leave the suburban ugly automotive you know i call it the strip mall of generica uh you know interstate <laughs> exchange to go into something that, that looks just like that right um you know you, you kind of go into these places for an escape from the real world and and uh, the, the parks that were able to hold that on, and in our case, being able to restore some of these parks back to, to that that um, kind of glory. And I think some of the emerging business models of, you know, kind of these year-round festivals, uh, celebrating, you know, the the local barbecue and brews, for example. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, you know that's the stuff that, um, you know, it's authentic. It's uh, you know, kind of ever-changing, but but also kind of based and rooted. In, uh, in time and place, which, uh, um, you know, it has a broader appeal than just uh, teenagers, you know, looking to get out of the house for a few hours, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I um, I know you have a chapter in there by uh, Rick Bastrop um, that goes back and t- kind of thinks through and ta- he where he shares his retrospective on some of those leaders from the past. But now, um, and Mel, we've just been touching on it, but the evolution of these parks now to, to modern day um, and, and the growth into them, which is a whole chapter that you have in, in there. So how have these things really changed i mean let's let's talk further about how the parks have changed from when they originally popped up started sprouting to what their capacity is today well over time um they've become more sophisticated Uh um you know again over time people get um their preferences change their um entertainment changes um, sophistication of entertainment changes. I mean, our TV shows now are different than what it was 40 years ago. Um, 10 years ago. Uh, even 10 years ago. And um, sailing on a boat through a um, through a little waterway and watching a cannonball splash in a really crude-looking animatronic kind of awkwardly jerking up to shoot at the boat or whatever was thrilling in 1972 um, and uh, doesn't last all that long. And so part of that is, you know, you've got to you've got to keep up with the times or yeah. whatnot. Again, we've talked before. A lot of the changes are uh, from changes in ownership um, and companies that it wasn't their dream to build a park. It's an investment um, for the for the company. And so you keep getting farther and farther away from the original dream and the original intent, um, the original story behind the whole thing. You know, and again, that's inevitable. There's so many um, society economic. And, and so on factors you know, behind this. But like Mel was talking, I mean, the hope is 
there is something that people can tell. You don't have to know design to feel different in a place, and you don't know why. You go to just a standard, you know, random amusement park, and then you go to a well-designed park, um, including a Disney park. And John Hinch talks about this a lot in all of his, you know, his book and, uh, and everything in terms of when you design a space, people feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the cohesiveness of, of everything you put there. I mean, watch people go to Disneyland. You see people, you see these rough, tough looking dudes, you know, they're wearing uh, Mickey Mouse hats, <laughs> you know, as they hold their little daughter's hand walking along. Right. And it might be the same dude that'll punch you out at the local fair if you stepped in front of them. There's just something about that, you know. And um, so hopefully if if enough people understand that that matters and a lot of times it doesn't cost any extra to do that, you know, I mean, Eddie Sato talks about that from his mentor, Herbie Ryman. Bad taste doesn't cost anymore. Just put some thought into it. Put some design into it. And someone that knows what they're doing. So if we can, you know, keep those standards going, um, I think these places are important for society, you know, because it is an escape from all the, the chaos and stuff around them. And people like to socialize. I know this is a tough year um, to be dealing with this stuff, but people generally want to get together. Uh, they want to socialize. They want to interact with with people and experiences and things like that. Uh, so there's a lot of hope, uh, you know, for this industry. The trend was going pretty well. So um, we'll recover from this virus business, and, and it'll be better than ever. Love it. Barry, one last question. You know, one of the things I appreciate about history is it helps you get a better sense of where we are and where we're going. Um, and as you think about, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's uh, social distancing, whether it's, um, you know, the, 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 a lot of the capital investment with the major parks around these global IP lands, you know, a Star Wars land, a Harry Potter world, you know, and, and um, you know, the entire new uh, Universal Studios Beijing around these major intellectual properties, uh, an entire land based on Transformers. Um, if you were to just prognosticate uh, a little bit about the future of these uh, these uh, regional parks. Uh, what what do you what do you hope, wish, or, or anticipate as we're looking forward? Um, I think companies like Cedar Fair has shown us that we can do really nice stuff in a regional park, and it does not have to be based on transformers. <laughs> so the other thing that helps regional parks is that a lot of these more sophisticated. Um, technologies and experiences and whatever are becoming more affordable and more doable. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you're seeing more of these flyover attractions around the country, something that, you know, you couldn't have done 20 years ago. So it's more feasible uh, for regional parks to do it uh, with a smaller checkbook. Um, I think it just comes back to uh, an awareness and and a, a heart that, no, this matters. You know, this, this means something um, and we can do better. So, yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of hope, you know, even for Six Flags. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm I'm, just for the record, I'm my kids and I, especially my teenagers are card carrying Six Flags members. And, um, (laughs) you know, guys like um, Sally and the Justice League team, you know, they're doing a lot of good work and bringing the dark rides uh, back uh, to the regional park. So, hey, um, Barry, thank you so much. Thanks for your passion for your diligence, uh, for your commitment to, to getting some of this great history documented. Um, again, for any of our listeners, if, if you appreciate, uh, I know I, you, we've got a little bit of a weird historic, uh, historic, uh, kind of nerdiness that uh, we, we bring up every once in a while, but if that, <laughs> any of that even, you know, vaguely piques your interest, I can't encourage you enough to, to check out Barry's book. Cause it's, it's, 
it's not as dry as a history book sounds. Uh, it really is just. No, it isn't. It's a, it, so it, much fun. Well, it's important in terms of some of the, you know, true uh, industry kind of, um, you know, big ideas and, and the evolution of that. But then uh, it's just also just such a fun trip to the past, you know, as you're as you're walking us yeah. through and kind of on this virtual tour, you know, uh, past every ride show and restaurant uh, of these. Uh, it, it really is like a time machine. It's, it's just uh, wonderful work. Thank you so much for pulling that together and for I being that. on our, on our show. No, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Totally a lot of, the of fun. For once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Imagineering and an American dreamscape, Genesis, evolution and redemption of the regional theme park is the book by Barry R. Hill. Pick it up. Barry, how can people find it? Pretty much anywhere. Uh, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Your local bookstore can order it for you. You can order it from my publishing site, rivershorecreative.com. So no excuse, you know, <laughs> it's everywhere. Super. Thank you so much, brother. And I can't wait to roast you in the uh, little joke at the end of this episode. This, Sound this fun? This one better be a good one, Freddie. <laughs> and they're never good. <laughs> well, if they and if they are, it's uh, not on purpose. If it's not, I'll put my own in there. I have the last say in these shows. So <laughs> there, oh, you there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me Thank on, guys. Thank you so much, Gary. Oh, wow. What a great conversation. Barry totally brings out the stories that uh, these regional parks, they, they come to life when he's talking about it. And it really makes a case for people getting out there, visiting um, those great parks that are uh, that sort of pepper the landscape of America. So, Mel, I'm, I'm curious what you think, like, after reading the book, after <laughs> helping write the book, uh, and uh, uh, thinking through a theme themed entertainment industry, what can that we glean from those stories of these parks in the past? What's something we can learn from this history? You know, it's interesting. I think today, um, both within the themed attraction design profession, we, we have such a um, strong, almost dichotomy between, you know, the Disney Universal level parks and these regional parks. But uh, to me, um, as we've been tasked and contracted to go back and and uh, revitalize and renew and remaster plan some of these uh, original regional parks. We've dug in and we've drawn out of the history some of the the quali quality um, Disney alumni designers, the the some of the same folks that worked on Disneyland um, that uh, you know had the background with some of the motion picture studios uh, and and basically digging out some of their original artwork, some of their original creative direction, and then finding that some of the the good bones uh, that may be buried uh, beneath layers of Coca-Cola advertising <laughs> or whatever corporate sponsors and, and, and layers of steel track that some of those bones are still there in some of these parks and that uh, it's, it's actually a great baseline. I may mean, have been in situations where we're showing general managers of parks, uh, kind of some of the original design intent and artwork and color schemes of uh, some of the lands that they walk every day, and they had no idea that it ever looked, tasted, or feeled uh, the way that uh, it, it did, and that it had a, an original design integrity uh, that really had just been painted over the years of so many different maintenance directors just randomly right, picking right. colors or so many layers of, of, of really poor signage decisions and, and attractions just slapped on it together. And so, um, yeah, to me, there's just always uh, something you can learn from, especially the original design intent in many of these cases. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, it, it's good that those uh, original designers and, and visionaries uh, were were aiming for something. At least uh, it can be seen now in everything that uh, with a new visit. Hopefully we can see them with new eyes. Well, Mel, it's been a fun cruise through the history of America's regional theme parks, but the future calls. Why don't we get this puddle paddler back to the dock? Are you ready to go? Let's roll. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know we don't take your listening for granted. We love to make this show, and we love that you love it, too. Would you mind helping us out by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts? That'll really help us out, help get the word out to so many more people. We can't thank you enough for listening to our show. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks. We also want to thank our guest, Barry Hill. Barry is the author of Imagineering and American Dreamscape, Genesis, Evolution, and Redemption of the Regional Theme Park, with contributions from Rob Decker of Cedar Fair, Rick Bastrop, and our very own Mel McGowan. The book tells the story of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, most you probably haven't, and it is a fascinating tale to tell. The book is available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or direct from the publisher at rivershorecreative.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest creative advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at Themed Attraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. You know, Mel... Barry is not only an author and hit podcast producer, he's also a herpetologist. You know, a student of snakes? Well, some even call him a snake hisperer. <laughs> he's releasing a new book of romantic poems written just for snakes. Here's one he's written for the python. It goes like this. Burmese python sitting in a tree. H-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love. Then comes asphyxiation. For a snake poem, it's kind of short. Thanks for listening, folks.